welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica, and this is a special end of 2016 edition. This episode consists of excerpts from a recent talk I gave at a conference commemorating the end of the UC Berkeley AmpLab project. I talked about some recent trends in data and AI in this presentation. For a complete list of trends we're watching in 2017, as well as regular doses of highly curated resources, subscribe to our highly regarded weekly newsletters, the Data and AI Newsletters. I hope you enjoy the episode. All right, so now I'm going to switch gears and talk about some of the other things that uh, we're noticing at O'Reilly. Um, so some of this might be related to what AmpLab is doing, some uh, won't be. So first, um, uh, deep learning. So a couple of data points. One, uh, we're starting to run uh, deep learning training at some of our events, so, so they sell out, right? So uh, people are hungry to learn about this uh, new machine learning techniques. Uh, when I say data scientists, I literally mean data scientists who are not experts in deep learning. So these are people who use uh, other machine learning techniques. Uh, so what we also notice is that every time we publish anything on deep learning, uh, it just generates a lot of uh, traffic. And this is not true only in the U.S. because uh, we do translate many of our articles into Chinese. And uh, the most popular uh, articles recently, at least, are, have to do with deep learning. So lots of libraries, and I think there will be more than one library. I think people are uh, interested a lot these days in TensorFlow, but I do think that there will be several libraries. And the Spark community has already kind of recognized that uh, they have to support deep learning. So uh, Databricks has made deep learning available on their platform. But uh, just yesterday, I was at uh, an Intel AI event, and they made an announcement that uh, they're going to open source something called Big DL on Spark uh, early next year. So we took a stab at uh, understanding uh, who's using deep learning. Uh, we, we did a crawl of the internet. So we found a few hundred companies. Uh, some are using it in production. Some are just playing around with it. And it, at this point, it tends to skew towards uh, uh, slightly larger companies, right? So secondly, uh, streaming data. So again, so this is mostly informed by uh, what I'm seeing at our events. So here I'm just taking kind of the point of view that uh, uh, of streaming rather than the whole real-time, low-latency uh, systems, right? So it turns out that at least most of the people I talk to operate in this realm of near real-time. So streaming is probably the right adjective more than uh, real-time. So one of the things we've noticed is that... Um, uh, while most of the people who engage in this unbounded data sets tend to be more on the developer engineering side, there is a grow, growing cohort of people uh, more on the machine learning and uh, business analytics side who want to use and are starting to use uh, unbounded data sets. So I think part of it is just accessibility. So a lot of the tools tend to be uh, aimed at people who deal with engineering and infrastructure. Uh, so one uh, good sign here is that the Spark community, at least, is attempting to open up streaming to a broader population, right? So using this new structured streaming API. So a uh, talent shortage has always been framed around data scientists, and we think uh, that's still the case. But uh, we're also hearing from many people who think uh, uh, there's... Uh, 
need for data scientists to have slightly better software engineering skills. So as data science goes into production, I think uh, we're, at least uh, in our conversations with people, they want a cohort of data scientists who can actually touch production systems, so slightly better software engineering skills. I think Jupyter Notebooks are great, but uh, I don't know many people who deploy Jupyter Notebooks in production. So the cloud, uh, as you know, growing, uh, the public cloud providers continue to grow at an uh, incredible rate. So. We've always taken the view that we're the Switzerland of uh, technology, so we have a mix of uh, uh, technologies at our events and in our uh, uh, publishing platforms. So they include open source. Increasingly, we're, we're being asked to do more around these uh, uh, managed services in the cloud. Um, and part of it, I think, is if you drill down and if you uh, talk to companies who are going to deploy uh, uh, applications in the cloud, there's really a lot of uh, reasons why you might want to go with these managed services, right? So they're probably cheaper. You le need le less people. And they provide you with a lot of uh, uh, free things that you, you would have to deal with if you had to uh, hire infrastructure engineers to uh, run this for you. But uh, the reality is, as you guys know, there will be a mix of solutions. There will be uh, uh, hybrid solutions of on-prem, on-cloud. And there's all also going to be uh, specialized cloud providers. So Josh here, who is now at GE, can talk to you about Predix, which is a uh, cloud for uh, the industrial internet that GE runs. But uh, one thing that I, I do know is that uh, even in this world of managed services and cloud computing, Spark seems to be uh, something that's going to persist. So it seems like the Spark API is widespread enough, the community of developers is broad enough, that uh, the cloud providers always send me emails to remind me how uh, how well they support Spark, right? So I'm not worried about Spark in this, uh, in this new world of managed services. So let me reframe the skills gap then slightly. So we, we are at least being asked to provide training more and more for engineers who are also savvy with this new world of uh, cloud computing. So a pattern that many in the big data world notice early on, and obviously AmpLab did as well, is this decoupling of storage and computation. I think this afternoon you'll hear more about Aluxia, which is emerging to be that common memory layer, shared memory layer for big data. It's a storage back shared memory layer. But uh, even in the deep learning world, you're starting to see uh, uh, deep uh, neural networks with access to external memory. So data applications are getting easier to build. Again, the cloud has uh, uh, a lot to do with this. So this is a slide I chose from Mike's uh, first AMP camp. As you can see, he probably drew this himself. Um, but uh, back, in, back in those days, at least, uh, I think uh, uh, many of us thought about things in terms of stacks, right, so, and, and platforms, right? So what is your platform? What is your stack? Uh, increasingly now, I think if you talk to people, they want to talk in terms of applications and how do I compose these different components to build end-to-end -end solutions. So rather than kind of the stack perspective, they want kind of the uh, pipeline or workflow perspective, right? So how do I go from source data to application? So in this case, for example, I, I stole this uh, slide from Chilu when he gave a 
keynote for us in Beijing, right? So at least uh, Microsoft has a rich set of managed services all the way to touching uh, non-programmers, right? So uh, business analysts and, uh, and business users. So we're also seeing uh, uh, abundance of many, many AI systems. So here from uh, our perspective, we're ways off from general AI, but we're already seeing an explosion in many of these uh, narrow AI systems. So once a year, uh, our friends at Bloomberg Beta create a state of the machine intelligence landscape for us. And uh, uh, this year, they even uh, had a special section in this uh, landscape map devoted to uh, uh, what seems to be an emerging platform for building these AI applications. So you can, uh, you can drill down into uh, sub-communities within the AI space. So here's a similar landscape map we did for uh, intelligent bots. We're in the process of doing one right now for robotics. Um, but as we uh, as we uh, look at this many narrow AI systems, we're still in the early stages of learning how to evaluate them, how to describe them, uh, what are the right uh, uh, ways of, of comparing these many many uh, AI applications. So we we took a stab and looked at again uh, by crawling the internet by and we started to look at what are some of these AI applications that are emerging outside of uh, uh, Silicon Valley, right? So we we noticed uh, you know security is one of those spaces that seems to be uh, using many of these technologies. I think a lot of you hear a lot about healthcare as well. And we tried to identify which uh, companies seem to be investing in AI. So mostly using uh, job postings. So I recently asked a friend of mine, so I said, why don't you write a short blog post for me to describe kind of uh, the stack for self-driving cars? So I think it took him like 10 to or 15 pages, right? So, and there were so many diagrams, uh, I couldn't even fit it on the slide, right? So, but. Uh, one thing that I noticed is that uh, uh, in many of these uh, uh, advanced AI applications, uh, there's a simulation platform. And uh, uh, in this case, if you look in the lower right corner, actually, the simulation platform is built on top of Spark, right? Uh, so the idea is uh, uh, if you want to roll out changes to your AI application, you probably need some platform to simulate how that uh, application will behave in the real world. We're also excited about kind of just uh, hacker projects that we're starting to get. So, um, in fact, some of our most popular uh, uh, articles tend to be more on the along these lines, right? So it seems like we're at the stage where hackers who are not necessarily familiar with machine learning can just compose and, uh, and uh, uh, piece together these many, many components and build uh, interesting, uh, interesting uh, narrow AI systems. And so as we uh, deploy many of the systems in mission critical situations, uh, we need tools for, to build reliable and robust uh, AI software. So I, this is uh, something that I think AmpLab was early to talk about. So in, in the context of machine learning pipelines, so how do we, how do we build uh, pipelines uh, and estimate error, for example, right? 
So to the extent that uh, we want uh, programmers to be more productive and uh, be able to build these applications at scale and uh, to have these applications remain reliable and robust, uh, we probably will start seeing tools that use machine learning to help programmers, right? I don't actually hear that many people talk about this. I, I've heard AmpLab uh, talk about this and uh, Peter Norvig at Google, who's the co-chair of our AI conference, uh, talks a lot about this. Uh, but tools that help programmers become more productive, make it easier for them to build uh, these systems in a reliable and robust way. So the research community uh, at AI in AI is very active. So you will see uh, systems that add more and more capabilities. Uh, many, many uh, features, including uh, multimodal emotion detection, which is one thing that I'm excited about. But also, uh, the, fun the underlying algorithms are going to be probably different over time, right? Right now, we're in the, I think we're in a situation where uh, most of these systems rely on large-scale pattern recognition. They require a lot of data, a lot of compute. Uh, so... There's uh, definitely a, a group of researchers who are trying to offer alternative approaches. So about a year ago, there were a bunch of books that came out of, about uh, AI safety. So basically, positing that uh, general AI is just around the corner, and so therefore, uh, we need to start talking about uh, AI safety. So what we've noticed is uh, more recently, a lot of the discussion has shifted somewhat to more of uh, the economy, economic implications, right? So I guess one of the tragic things about the last election, aside from the result, aside from the result, is that a lot of the discussion tended to be around free trade agreements, but in reality, I think uh, the implications of automation are gonna be more profound. Uh, and uh, we're hearing more and more companies, again, start talking about uh, uh, digital transformation and uh, some of the companies are deep into digital transformation. Some are just getting started, but uh, a lot of that will result in automation. And, and finally, uh, one thing that I, I liked uh, noticing this last uh, year is uh, a lot of interest among our peers in, in the areas of ethics, fairness, and transparency. So not only do we have books, we've had a lot of uh, uh, I've seen a lot of people give talks about this at meetups. Uh, we've had a few keynotes at this, about this at Strata Plus Hadoop World. But also, uh, I think just generally people are also interested in even training programs as to how, how they can bring these ideas inside their organizations. So in closing, uh, if you want to learn more, um, come to our events. Uh, here are some references. Uh, where a lot of these uh, charts and uh, data came from. And uh, congratulations to AmpLab. So I'm not, I'm, I guess I'm not technically a sponsor of AmpLab, but I've been uh, privileged to be invited to many of the retreats. And, uh, and uh, thank you so much for making me part of the extended AmpLab family. And also thank you for succeeding because it's, uh, it's a great for punditry if you, uh, if you predict something that actually happens. So, Ian, make sure Rise succeeds too. Yeah. We now have over 80 free reports on many topics in data science, big data, and AI. They cover trends, 
tools, techniques, and applications. Go to O'Reilly.com slash data slash free for a complete list of our free reports. You can follow our uh, newsletter feeds, uh, our two Twitter handles, at Strataconf and at O'Reilly AI. And this is Ben Lorica. I'm at Big Data. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, you can subscribe through iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud and never miss an episode. 